Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, it's been a little over a year since the FTC approved the sale of over-the-counter hearing aids, with the goal of promoting competition and innovation, and of course, lowering costs. Has it worked out that way? We'll look at a new study. Also this morning in our Community and Business Spotlight, the Center for Corporate Engagement at Ohio Northern University is the latest collaboration of education and business to make both work better. And in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, in nearly every business category from fast food to executive professionals, workers are commanding premium pay and benefits. Do you know what you're really worth? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, September 28, 2023. The first thing that jumped out at me on the uh, Newswire this morning, I thought this was uh, really interesting. One of those things that make you go, hmm. We all know that the uh, effects, the global effects of the pandemic, and on the Today in History calendar, it was this day three years ago, 2020, that uh, the one millionth fatality globally attributed to COVID-19 was recorded. Uh, At that point, Johns Hopkins University had logged more than 33 million known cases of the virus and 1 million deaths uh, as of this day, three years ago in 2020. And, um, of course, we all know how everybody reacted with uh, lockdowns and and all of that to the uh, pandemic, the effects of which uh, have been wide-ranging, and in some cases, you, you couldn't have known some of the ways that uh, the pandemic would affect us. Case in point, and this is actually data out of Great Britain, where the number of hip fractures last year was up 10% from pre-pandemic levels, and physicians there believe that the increase is indicative of the effects that the lockdown had on the older population, 72,000 hip fractures recorded. And again, this is in Great Britain, but um, I, I just thought this was uh, kind of interesting, really jumped out at me. Uh, 10% rise in the number of hip fractures compared to before the pandemic. And they said it was because older people just couldn't get out. Uh, they weren't as active and so more fragile and an increased risk of falling because folks were locked down in their homes by themselves uh the royal college of physicians suggests that each year of decreased activity due to the pandemic will mean additional costs to the healthcare system and this is a perfect example so and that's not to to blame anyone for the uh, lockdowns necessarily um because how could you have predicted that the number of i mean i guess you can say now you can look back and say now we should have guessed we should have uh known that we would see things like this but who would have thought about it at the time so i just thought that was uh, kind of interesting uh let's see what else is going on in the world some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day uh millennials you know have this reputation for being the always on generation and of course the pandemic didn't help this when really the only way we had of communicating with others was electronically because I couldn't see people in person and so on. Big gatherings were forbidden. But um, millennials who already had the reputation of being the always-on generation, frequently uh, checking their emails outside of work hours, they feel compelled to clear their inbox before they relax and all of that. They tend to work through lunch. Now a new survey is backing up the uh, always-on generation image that they have they find that two in three millennials believe that it is impossible impossible for them to ever unplug it's a poll of 2000 adults found that 65 percent of those individuals millennials born between 1981 and 1996 believe they face too many distractions to be able to switch off each day it is impossible uh a mere 12 percent of older adults uh born between 1928 and 1945, the so-called silent generation, only 12% uh, in that generation feel the same way. Now, they have no problem unplugging. Um, 45% of millennials admit to checking their phones first thing in the morning. 
and and they they say they have an average of only 91 minutes of free time daily. 41% of millennials say they can't even watch TV without simultaneously scrolling on their phones. Um, the survey found that 59% of those in the survey say they are in constant motion and struggle to genuinely relax. This is where we are today, folks. This is, this is where society is. Impossible to disconnect is what they say. It is impossible to disconnect. Hmm. Um, and maybe that leads to this, according to a new survey by the live streaming platform Live Me online these days, it seems is the place to go for those who want to make new friends. Their survey suggests that people prefer making friends online. Now, of course, this is from a live streaming platform, but nonetheless, uh, according to their survey, people say they feel more connected to people online versus in person. Is this where is this is this where we have how far we have come? We feel more connected to people when we're online versus in person. Uh, they were uh, talking to people specifically age eighteen to thirty-five in the U.S., and they find that eighty percent of people believe that it is easier. Or they just prefer to make friends online rather than in person. 80% prefer to make friends online rather than in person. 70% said that they feel more connected to people online than in person. More than 85% are willing to meet friends in person only that they uh, only the ones after they first met online. Uh, and 51%, only 51% have actually done so. I, I don't know. I just, I'm just flabbergasted by that. The, the number of people actually prefer to make friends online rather than in person. Have, have we sunk so low that we now prefer to meet people online uh, versus in person? I don't know. That's just uh, that's just bizarre to me. Um, with that, I thought this was kind of interesting, uh, as long as we're on the subject. Uh, all of that data, knowing that, I can see why Southeast Technical University in Ireland has become the first institute of higher learning to offer a degree as a social media influencer. That's right. At Southeast Technical University, you can earn a bachelor's in content creation and social media. It is an entire course on being a social media influencer. They say it includes courses on business, video and audio editing, and creative writing. Dr. Eleanor O'Leary said that uh, graduates could use this degree to work for themselves and become social media influencers, but more likely, she says, uh, you would use this degree to secure a content creation job for an established company because companies these days have presence on social media. That's how they market to young people and, and so on and so forth. So that would really be the career path for this. Yes, you could use it to become a social media influencer, but that's not really uh, what it's for. It's kind of interesting. Um, many people, she says, become uh, social media influencers almost by accident, but this degree could help with the business side of things. So... I guess it's uh, an idea whose time has come. What can you say? A couple of other items among the first things you need to know this morning. And again, here's another uh, thing that just speaks to how integrated our devices have become in our lives. A survey that finds the average American takes their phone uh, out of their pocket to take a photo Six times per day. Six photos per day. 69% say they have photos of family members. 58% take selfies. 52% take pictures of their pets. Um, 70% of respondents say when they take their pictures, they intend to print them out, but only 19% actually do so. More than likely, they just sit on your phone or in the cloud on your camera roll. 
Uh, in today's digital age, our camera rolls have become digital black holes where stories, where the stories behind our photos are getting lost. Um, but that's interesting. Six times a day. We average six photos a day. Um, I And apparently some people are taking a lot more than that because you know how many photos I generally take per day on average? Zero. Zero is my number. So that means... I'm, I'm throwing off the average. There are a lot of people who are going overboard with their uh, photos. It's just, we can't get enough, I guess. And, and lastly, here among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, a new survey by the digital PR firm Break of Dawn. And I'm not familiar with this, but it's a public relations firm. They are calling out Cleveland Brown Stadium as among the most dangerous stadiums in the NFL for checking out a game. The most dangerous stadiums in the NFL. Brown Stadium. More than 40% of Browns fans say they personally have witnessed a crime at or near the stadium. 40%. That puts them, I don't know if it's at the bottom, but very near the bottom. A majority of... Uh, parents in the survey said that they would not feel comfortable with their kids going to Cleveland Browns Stadium by themselves. Kind of interesting. Um, oh, here it is. It says uh, Brown Stadium was actually the second most dangerous in the league. Uh, the the bottom of the list, Empower Field at Mile High, home of the Denver Broncos, was number one. Or is at the top or bottom of the list, depending on how you want to rank it or list it. But um, Cleveland Browns Stadium number two is the most dangerous stadiums in the NFL. I have no idea what the least dangerous is. I don't have uh, that data, but interesting nonetheless. So make of that what you will. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. A chance of showers today with a high around 70. Showers possible tonight, a low around 60. Democrats have introduced a bill at the Ohio State House to raise the state's minimum wage from the current 1010 per hour. If this bill passes, it would raise the minimum wage $1 every year until it reaches $15 an hour. Democrat Herschel Craig of Columbus says this is about addressing poverty in our state. An Ohioan without children must earn $15.33 an hour to have a living wage in Ohio, according to the MIT Living Wage Calculator. Kevin Landers, the State House. Garner Trucking's president and CEO and Finley native Sherry Garner Brumbaugh has been named the Ohio Trucking Association's Hall of Honor. The association proudly inscribed the name of Garner Brumbaugh of Garner Trucking as a member of the Hall of Honor in recognition of distinguished service to the trucking industry. Garner Brumbaugh has served in several leadership roles in various state and national trucking organizations. She's worked as a strong advocate for trucking industry issues, including fair treatment of truck drivers, relief from trucking industry regulatory burdens, and support for small businesses. Learn more about Sherry and Garner Trucking and the story on our website. An Ohio destination has some of the best fall foliage in the entire country. The 10 best destinations for fall foliage was released recently by USA Today, and Hocking Hills was ranked number three in the U.S. Experts say the wet spring and sunny summer are to thank for the 13,000 acres of autumn views. There are many ways to get a look. You can drive or hike. Hocking Hills Scenic Air Tours will also offer a unique look. Brett Wharf, ONN News. Habitat for Humanity of Finley-Hancock County will be holding a home dedication ceremony for its second double build of the year. Construction of Habitat's 56th and 57th homes at 524 North Corey Street in Finley are complete, and a ceremony will be held on Saturday. A live stream of the event will be available on the Habitat for Humanity of Finley-Hancock County's Facebook page for people unable to attend. Get more details on the home dedication event and the story on our website. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM.
So you remember about a year ago, the FDA approved the sale of over-the-counter hearing devices as an alternative to traditional prescription hearing aids. The idea was to lower the cost and provide the benefit to a greater number of people. So has it worked out that way thus far? Joining us this morning with results of a new national poll commissioned by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association is ASHA Vice President for Audiology Practice, Dr. Janice Trent. So what did you find? Are these OTC devices reaching the people that they were designed to benefit? Well, not exactly. <laughs> we, you know, we had great expectations a year ago that this was going to be a game changer, that we were going right. to really reach individuals who really needed help. Uh, but the results have been somewhat underwhelming, with only about 2% of individuals actually purchasing the over-the-counter devices. So what are the shortcomings? Why have these not caught on uh, the way they were intended to? Well, we're that's our next research to find out what's going on. We certainly know that they are available. We certainly know that there's been ample um, marketing uh, online. I'm sure you've seen some of those, uh, certainly on the television. Uh, so we were kind of, we we're kind of wondering the same thing. Um, as a professional, having worked in this as a practitioner, I, I will tell you that I think hearing loss is a lot more personal um, than people uh, than many of us recognize. And so uh, I. I'm thinking that more people want to just actually go and talk to a professional about this decision. Um, I, I applaud the, the o OTC, the entry to this, because it has certainly opened the door for dialogue. I, I'm grateful to be talking to you on the, uh, online right now. Uh, and, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about hearing loss because, you know, it's kind of been the undiscussed uh, healthcare issue that is a major issue across the country. Yeah. Uh, when these devices first came on the market a year ago, we kind of compared them to the concept of reading glasses that, that you can buy. But when you go to pick those up off the shelf. They have this little chart there that you can help you pick the right magnification to help you see how they work. How does someone know if they are picking the right over-the-counter hearing device? Uh, I'm wondering if maybe that's part of the hesitancy here. Well, I, you know, and I think you're possibly right about that. Uh, you know, the, the guidelines stated that individuals just had to fill out a questionnaire about what kind of hearing loss they had. And, you know, if you had a hearing, no hearing in one ear, you know, you're not a candidate. If you, you know, feel like you have congestion, they certainly sent you to a doctor, but they did not encourage people to get a hearing evaluation. It was just an issue of you taking a general questionnaire. And I think that that's where we want to fall down and say, hey, we need you to come into an office, get into a sound booth and get a, an appropriate hearing evaluation. What are we going to learn? We're going to learn what the shape of your hearing loss is. You know, some people have great hearing in the lows, low frequencies, uh, A, E, O, U, but they can hear the highs, the T, H, the F, the T, H sounds. And so that's going to be a sloping audiogram. It's going to it's going to impact the way you understand speech versus someone might have a rising audiogram where they don't hear the vowels but they hear the consonants or they may have a flat where they just don't hear anything above a certain level. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is always going to impact what the OTC is going to do for them if they're not aware of what their needs are. Well, and that was one of the initial questions, uh, even among experts, as to how much benefit these devices would actually provide uh, and how many people they could actually help. Obviously, your organization has looked extensively at this. What is the verdict? Honestly, I think that this is a great entry into amplification. You know, people have so many fears and concerns about uh, getting hearing aids. I think it's a fine entry into discovering what amplification can do. Uh, is it the best option for them? I doubt it. Uh, is it easy and accessible? 
Yes, it is. Uh, will it help them to some extent? I, I absolutely believe that it will. Uh, but I also think that the more comfortable they get with hearing, you know, as they begin to enter into dialogue with friends and, and catch the jokes and things like that, they're going to begin to want more. That is perfectly okay. We just want them in the door. You know, yeah. we've, over the years, we've only gotten about 20% of the people who need care to get in. We want to increase that number from 20 up to 80%. And if, if using the over-the-counter hearing aids will get us to that end, we will gladly accept that. So this survey is uh, finding that thus far in this first year, uh, there's not been the adoption that was expected or hoped for. It, it hasn't had the impact uh, that, uh, again, was was anticipated. But is this still too early to, to render a verdict as to whether this was overall as to whether this was a good idea or uh, a bad idea? There's still time to sort of improve the adoption of this and get that end result that you were talking about that, that you really want. Absolutely. I think that, that but but this is a great point. Uh, to say, hey, we need to do something else. Yeah. That, uh, that, that the approach that we've taken to adopting, uh, this process is, is maybe not working like we should. So thank you so much for have, for opening your lines to allow us to have this conversation because we really do want to encourage people to say, hey, it's okay. Go look at it. But we also want to say, Please go get a hearing evaluation. Audiologists are across the country. Uh, you have an audiology department in almost every major hospital in the country. You also have audiologists working with ear, nose, and throat doctors. You have audiologists in private practice. You can get the quality care that you need so that, so that you can then make a healthy decision about whether over-the-counters are appropriate for you. Uh, so again, that was going to be my next question. What would you advise people who maybe are are thinking that might these might be something uh, that that would benefit me, but I haven't really looked into it. I've heard the advertisements and so on. I'm I'm still a little bit hesitant. Basically, uh, check with the audiologist and and you know go get checked out is the is the message, right? Absolutely. I can't tell you the number of adults who sit in my uh, in my sound booth and when I ask them when was the last time they had their hearing test, they say uh, in the third grade. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah. And I'm talking adults. So so a lot of people have not just done the basic thing of getting their hearing tested. You know, you go to the doctor, you get your heart checked, your lungs checked, and they'll check your vision. But oftentimes. Just checking your hearing is something that's not done. So everyone needs to just go and get a hearing test to make sure that their hearing is fine. And the audiologist is the person for you to see. Interesting survey uh, commissioned by the American Speech Language Hearing Association on this first year of over-the-counter hearing devices and the impact that they have or have not had to this point. And again, uh, Vice President for Audiology Practice, Dr. Janice Trent, with us this morning. Where do folks learn more about this uh, survey and uh, some of this data? You can go to our website. That will be www.asha, that's A-S-H-A dot org forward slash public. We will link that up on our webpage as well. Dr. Trent, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Now, the Good Mornings Community and Business Spotlight. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be putting the Center for Corporate Engagement at Ohio Northern University in the spotlight. And joining us from ONU is Carol Turchik. Tell us a little bit about what the Center for Corporate Engagement is. It's actually been around now for about a year, right? Yes, yes. We started a year ago, and the center is designed to really understand what businesses in the central Ohio region need and want from Ohio Northern University, um, specifically in the area of professional development for employees within the companies in the area. And you actually were telling me that you spent like eight months talking with these business leaders uh, to really get an extensive look at what the center should look like moving forward. Absolutely. So we really wanted to design it from the beginning to Mm. be the best resource that it could be. And so we asked the questions, listened to what people really needed, and then designed a program to meet those needs. And in the months since, you've sort of been fleshing that out. So what is your vision for the center? Yeah, so we currently have kind of two formats. So one is a private version where we would come in and do programming 
for the company specifically for their group or their industry um, based on what they need. And then an open enrollment format where we have courses, um, programs that are in the fall and spring. We have a calendar and people would just sign up to take those different programs and they would be in with people from different companies. And uh, give us some examples of what some of those programs will look like. Yeah, the, um, the biggest need um, that we've heard, and it's not surprising, is kind of the middle manager level um, or frontline leaders moving up or first-time frontline leaders. Um, a lot of times people are put in those positions and may not have the tools to do that for many different reasons. So our programs will help fill that gap. So we might have one-day programs such as managing conflict, critical conversations, building trust in the workplace. And then we have several certificate programs, which you would think of as micro-credentials. And those would be a manager essentials program. There would be a practical project management. In the spring, we'll be having a public sector leadership program, a graphic information systems certificate. So really the leadership skills and those core tools that mid-level managers and supervisors need to really be effective. And how would folks then take advantage of these resources? Uh, They can go to our website, which is cce.onu.edu, and all of our programs are listed there. They can, there's a place to fill out information if they want us to contact them about exploring how we might be a resource for them. We'd love to just have a conversation and really see what we can do. We're very agile um, in creating whatever it is that companies are needing. That's a good point because as we mentioned, you spent several weeks talking with companies about, you know, their needs and and so on in, in terms of fleshing this out and what this will look like, but that's an ongoing process. Absolutely. We love to be creative. We love to meet the time you know, elements that need to be considered, um, how the programs developed, delivered, and we have extensive experience from past centers on how to build that. So although the center's new, um, our team is not new to this space. So we really do have that expertise and experience to build exactly what they need. And these uh, programs, uh, these resources, are they open to all Yeah, absolutely. So any organization that is looking to really develop their employees and give them the tools they need to... And what uh, organization or business isn't. Absolutely, absolutely. And we hear from many that um, they want to do it and they're doing some, but there's always um, an interest in really doing more or doing it maybe more effectively. Because this is relatively new... um, How do you know that you're being successful? I mean, what's the measurement of success for a a venture like this? Sure. So at this point, I think the measure of success is the conversations that we're currently having with the companies. Mm -hmm. They feel a sense of partnership with us and almost relief that we actually can do what they're trying to do and may not be able to do, or that we can bring something different and make it even better. So right now, I think our sense of success is that people see us and and trust us, and that they're partnering with us to actually do this work. Um, In the long term, the success will be the people that are in the programs. So if you have a mid-level manager who all of a sudden is able to have a critical conversation or give good feedback or thrive in conflict, um, that is truly the feedback we get that that's different for them and they're able to really um, be a better manager. Again, Carol Turchik uh, is with Ohio Northern University in the Center for Corporate Engagement. You mentioned the website where folks can learn more about what the center is, the uh, resources and programming that you offer. Uh, Let's mention that again. Okay, it's um, cce.onu.edu. So it's the Center for Corporate Engagement. And again, we will be uh, putting the Center for Corporate Engagement in the spotlight over the next several weeks. You're going to hear quite a bit more about that. Carol, thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having us. The Community and Business Spotlight is a promotional advertisement paid for by the featured sponsor. Information that makes a difference. Good mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Now, here's something that you don't expect to have happen as you are driving to work in the morning. 
uh, in New Jersey, uh, outside of Clifton, New Jersey, a driver had to be treated for minor injuries after a deer fell from an overpass and crashed through his windshield. <laughs> wow! I mean, ever heard of uh, drivers uh, striking deer uh, in the roadway before? But this is the deer striking the car. Fell from an overpass through the windshield of his car. Happened around 8 a.m. yesterday in the southbound lanes of Route 21 outside Clifton, New Jersey. Police say the deer jumped or fell off the Route 3 overpass before smashing through the windshield. The impact caused the car to hit a concrete barrier and crash into another vehicle. Uh, the report goes on to say that, sadly, the deer did not survive, but the driver uh, was uh, only only had minor injuries, so good news there. He's going to be fine. But try to explain that to your boss. Um, Mr. Jones, I won't be in today. A deer fell off the overpass and into my windshield. <laughs> wow. Um, again, that would be one of those things. If you're the boss and you get that phone call from a worker that says they're not coming into work because of deer, I mean, you'd have to believe that, right? Nobody could make that up. That would, that's just too bizarre to actually make up. But anyway, elsewhere in the broken news this morning, speaking of, uh, weird things, uh, crashing into vehicles. Have you seen the video on this? I saw this a couple of days ago. And I thought it was just incredible. Fans at a high school football game in Texas were treated to an extraordinary spectacle when an extra point kick wound up inside of an SUV that just happened to be cruising by at just the right moment. A video shared on social media shows it all began with a successful extra point kick, but the football, after it goes through the uprights, sailed um, I went through the uprights the far end of the field, and here's the twist. There are no nets behind the goalposts, and the ball, uh, after it sailed through the uh, uprights, uh, went beyond the end zone in a comedic twist of fate, an SUV cruising by at that precise instant with its windows down. The football drops perfectly through the open window of the vehicle. <laughs> There ought to be an extra, extra point for uh, actually you know, being so precise. And, I mean, what are the odds? What are the odds? Remarkably, the driver of the SUV, seeming, seemingly unfazed, didn't even tap the brakes as he drives by. Well, it is Texas. So, <laughs> this may happen more often than you realize. I don't know. But there is video of this. If you haven't seen it, it is pretty incredible. And there's no way it could be staged. I, I, you know, there's no way that this could be staged. It's got to be real. Anyway. Elsewhere in the broken news, a Florida woman uh, was found allegedly squatting in a multi-million dollar home while the owners were on vacation. Uh, this happened at Bonita Springs. Uh, police reportedly found Luisa Villa in the home uh, that when they... When they arrived in the home, because apparently they'd had a report of uh, somebody had broken into the home uh, while the owners were on vacation and was just making herself at home uh, there in the uh, vacant residence. Um, When police arrived, they found her eating a sandwich and wearing a uh, dress that belonged to the actual lady of the house. She raided raided the closet and was wearing uh, the uh, owner's clothes. When uh, police questioned Ms. Via, she claimed to be the owner of the home and provided officers with paperwork to that effect, but they knew it was bogus and it was a bit suspicious. The paperwork wasn't <clears throat> exactly kosher. None of the documents presented were an official deed or bill of sale, nor did any documents have the proper state seal on them, according to the police report. So, Ms. Via is no longer squatting at the multi-million dollar home. Uh, so, good news there for the actual owners. How would you like to get that call on vacation? Hey, there's somebody living in your home. 
But anyway, uh, she's no longer living at that home. She is, however, uh, squatting, as it were, at the uh, local county jail. So they found another place for her to live. (laughs) At least for a time. She is being charged with larceny, burglary, fraud, and resisting arrest. A couple of other items here in the uh, broken news. Um, Speaking of people uh, breaking into places that they shouldn't be breaking into, uh, this in, what, uh, Linden, um, Whatcom, uh, Linden, is this Oregon? Uh, Yeah, Oregon. Uh, Linden, Oregon, Whatcom County. A suspect, here's the story, a suspect who broke into a Border Patrol office in Whatcom County said he was preparing for a zombie apocalypse. That's why he broke into the Border Patrol office. This is on the northern uh, border. The uh, uh, court documents show that on August 28th, a Border Patrol agent at the port of entry near uh, Leiden, I'm sorry, Leiden, uh, responded to an alarm and found Austin Geiger of Tigard, Oregon, in the Border Patrol office, wearing a Customs and Border Protection jacket and body armor. (laughs) He had broken into the Border Patrol office, donned body armor and a Customs Border Protection jacket. He also had a gun, ammunition, and a radio. When asked, what in the world are you doing, Mr. Geiger said he believed he was... In a zombie apocalypse. (laughs) He is currently being held in custody uh, until his uh, trial. He has multiple uh, felony convictions already on his record. So, probably not going to go well for him. Broke into a customs border patrol office. It's a zombie apocalypse, man. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning... Uh, wow, this is just one of those stories that make you go, wow. A Missouri woman has been fighting with the government to prove it's not a zombie apocalypse kind of thing. Well, I guess it could be in a sense. She's been fighting with the government to prove that she is actually alive. Uh, Yes, that's right. Uh, Madeline Michelle Carthen's life has been stuck in sort of a surreal bureaucratic nightmare since 2007 when the U.S. government erroneously declared her dead. Despite her persistent efforts to prove that she is, in fact, alive, uh, this uh, 52-year-old Missouri resident remains trapped in a bewildering ordeal that has spanned more than a decade. More than a decade and a half. Uh, According to news reports, the saga began when she was denied financial aid during the time that she was enrolled at Webster University. Uh, To her shock, she discovered that uh, the reason why she was denied financial aid is because she had been listed in the death master file maintained by the Social Security Administration. Now, how she got on that list is anyone's guess because she is, in fact, very much alive. The error triggered a series of complications with various government agencies affecting her education, her housing, and her employment. (laughs) I would imagine that's true. It's very hard to employ someone who is deceased. When when your employer goes to pay Social Security taxes and so on, um, hard to do that when you've been listed as deceased. Madeline Michelle has uh, tirelessly sought resolution, including filing a lawsuit against the Social Security Administration uh, back in 2019. But she, but the uh, lawsuit was dismissed because the government is immune from such lawsuits. You can't actually sue a government agency in that way. Uh, despite the Social Security Administration's continued claims of accuracy. Her struggle continues unabated. That's the that's the other crazy thing. I mean, the Social Security Administration continues to insist that they are right, that she is, in fact, dead. <laughs> Have you seen her recently? She's very much alive. But they say, no, 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 we're sure she's dead. 
Her struggle continues unabated. Her determination remains steadfast as she demands recognition and justice. Can you imagine having to fight for, you know, 15 years to prove to the government that you are, in fact, alive when they say you're dead? That's just crazy for this to go on that long. Uh, She says, I'm going to prove to them I'm alive. If it's the last thing I do, if it kills me, I'm going to prove them I'm alive. (laughs) There you go. That is, I mean, we laugh about it. I'm sure she uh, is long past the uh, point of finding humor in the situation there. There you go. Uh, That is today's broken news report, an update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to our regularly scheduled programming. Finley's Andy Ritz on becoming a Finley Rotarian. After 35 years working as a pediatrician in Finley, I wanted to give back to the community, but not at my job, but as a service that would reach many people. The best way to do this was for me to join Finley Rotary, and that's what I did in February of 2022. To become part of an organization that brings together business, professional leaders to provide community service and advance goodwill, contact Finley Rotary at FindleyRotary.org and click on join this message provided by wfin and now your daily download the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives and this actually uh, falls under both of those categories you remember on uh, tuesday of this week we were talking about the fact that federal student loan payments are set to restart as soon as next week as the pandemic-induced, nearly three-year-long pandemic-induced moratorium on student loan payments comes to an end in October, and we turn the calendar over to October uh, next week. So these student loan payments are going to come due uh, once again for the first time in nearly three years. And one of the ongoing stories over the course of that uh, pause, uh, student loan payments, has been just how much federal student loan debt is outstanding and how much it actually costs how much debt kids have to take on to get a college degree these days. Well, a new report from myelearningworld.com finds that even though college enrollment is down in the past decade, colleges and universities are raking in more money from tuition and revenue, uh, from tuition revenue from fewer students. And to put some numbers to it, uh, college enrollment since 2013 has declined by 14.4%, and yet schools are making 5.6% more in tuition revenue from students. Down 14.4% in terms of enrollment, but up 5.6% in revenue. Now, to put that in terms of exact numbers, college enrollment is down 2.9 million students over the last decade, 2.9 million fewer students. But total annual revenue for U.S. colleges from tuition and fees has increased by at least $15.2 billion over the last decade. Uh, To break this down further, in 2023, community college tuition actually went up the least. Um, It now is an average of $4,014 per year multiplied by 4.67 million students enrolled in community college in 2023. That is a total of $18.8 billion in tuition revenue, the lowest tuition rate for community colleges. Worth noting that two-year colleges are the only type of school to actually lose tuition revenue over the past decade, and even they are sitting at $18.8 billion in revenue. Um. In 2023, public university tuition at four-year schools, public university tuition at four-year schools rose to an average of $11,378 per year with 7.6 million students enrolled. That comes to a total of at least $86.5 billion in tuition revenue. And in 2023, tuition for four-year private universities increased to an average of $40,976 per year with 4.4 million students enrolled. Gives you a grand total of $181.1 billion in tuition revenue. Those numbers are just staggering. 
So, you know, 2023 may well be remembered as the year of the strike. You had Detroit auto workers on strike, Hollywood writers that just resolved their work stoppage, Hollywood actors are still on strike, Las Vegas hospitality workers may be the latest to walk off the job soon, even have restaurant workers and what Amazon employees talked about improving working conditions and all of that. A lot of high-profile work stoppages and and near-work stoppages over the past year or more. And in fact, in nearly every industry, workers are flexing their muscles to demand better pay and benefits these days. They figure that they have leverage because the job market is tight and The labor market has actually been trending in this direction for quite a while now. Back in October of 2021, we spoke with career and workplace expert Diane Domeyer from the global talent solutions firm Robert Half. It is today's Throwback Thursday. There is in certain professions a war for talent and the unemployment rate being as low as it is and the quit rate as high as it is Mm -hmm. means that employers need to be really competitive in what they're offering to retain and attract top talent. So it has driven compensation. How did the the pandemic change? And it seems like that's really what has brought on uh, many of these changes. How did the pandemic change the attitudes about what workers want? What is the the biggest change you see pre-pandemic versus now? So we know the pandemic changed nearly everything, but it absolutely changed employees' expectations. The opportunity that many had to work from home provided not only flexibility, but in many ways lifted the veil on the human condition and interactions between employee and employer became far more authentic. Um, Additionally, companies had to offer and enhance their programs for wellness and family support and were allowing many of their employees to even work remotely outside of their current geography. The bottom line is, many employees don't want to go back. (laughs) And so even as we come out on the other side of the pandemic, employers need to be prepared to determine, are they paying competitively? What is their culture and what is their flexibility if they want to retain their employees? I want to go back and underscore the word that you used, expectations, because uh, it seems as if uh, these are more than just wants. I mean, we always want more money or more benefits or, or what have you, but it seems that these things have been become greater expectations among today's workforce, and that is a key distinction, I think. Absolutely. And the options are there for certain professions Mm -hmm. to explore if those uh, needs aren't met. Now, it it seems that many experts are split on whether everything we've seen in the immediate post-pandemic economy, from inflation to the labor shortage, is transitory or a more permanent shift. When it comes to workers and these attitudes about their jobs and the ways in which they are compensated, their benefits, and, and so on, is this a lasting trend? Can you get a sense of whether this is a lasting trend or uh, is this something that is, like other things, possibly transitory? We believe many of these trends are a permanent uh, change. And as a matter of fact, even pre-pandemic, there was greater demand placed on expanding talent pools by thinking beyond your current geography or offering importance of flexibility, the pandemic at the end of the day just accelerated all of that. Yeah. Uh, so we anticipate that that will be longstanding and a permanent change, which is actually good news for both the employee and the employer in the sense that uh, talent pools have been opened and, and, and you can think differently about the way you hire and the programs you, you offer your existing employees. So speaking to those employers, what do they need to do then to attract and retain top talent? Well, it starts with compensation and benefits, right? So pay and benefits, making sure that you're competitive, using our salary guide as a resource or other online tools. That's the ante into the game, 
right? It starts there. But given employees want far more than compensation, if you want to up the table stakes, you need to consider what are your programs for flexibility, for remote work? Do you have competitive wellness programs? But also, what are you doing in employee engagement, Um, whether it be employee resource groups, promoting social responsibility, uh, diversity and inclusion programs? So organizational culture is really, really important. But then finally, changing your hiring practices to, number one, broaden your search beyond your current geography. Mm being flexible maybe on your parameters, and then given the war for talent, when you find someone that's a fit for your organization, you absolutely must move fast. And for job seekers, how do they uh, negotiate for uh, some of these benefits that they uh, want and 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 expect. I mean, uh, again, some of this is probably going to be in the initial offer. Some of it you have to ask for. So, what can job seekers do to negotiate those uh, benefits or or those perks that that they want or that they expect? Yeah, Chris. Nearly half of employees feel that they're underpaid, and so they would feel that they should negotiate higher comp, yet many people are uncomfortable with it. So here are my tips. Number one, do your research and know your worth. Uh, Resources like the salary guide can help with that. I can't tell you the number of times over the years where people have said they've utilized that data to help them negotiate higher compensation. So know your worth. And then second of all, make sure you prepare a business case. Not just because this is what the market bears, do you deserve that? Mm -hmm. But it needs to be based on what are your unique contributions and your unique accomplishments. Even with your existing employer, never assume that your career milestones have been committed to memory by your supervisor or employer. You need to be able to articulate the value to your organization. And it's worth it because employers far prefer to retain existing top talent versus going through the cost of replacing talent. So make your business case and then, you know, practice it, call in a resource, whether it be a mentor or um, someone that you trust, an industry expert that you can practice how you're going to negotiate your compensation. You can also utilize a recruiter to give you that feedback uh, to make sure that you are positioning yourself to maximize your income. Being your own best advocate is always good advice, regardless of the changes in the overall job market. And that is uh, certainly still true. Career and workplace expert, Diane Domeyer of Robert Half. Thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Again, from October of 2021, our conversation with career and workplace expert, Diane Domeyer from the global talent solutions firm, Robert Half today's throwback thursday and with that we will finish up our podcast for this morning remember you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. head on over to goodmornings.net coming up tomorrow on the program the job search website indeed is out with their first ever list of the top companies for work well-being what do the best workplaces have in common that makes people want to work for them We'll take a closer look. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.